Our New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. It's uh, found on page 152 of the New Testament side of our Bibles, or in the large print, it's 1171. Again, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who was the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body, for the building up of itself in love. Thank you very much, Ruthie, for reading uh, so clearly for us. So let's bow our heads then and pray for God's help as we open his word. So Father, our prayer today is that we would indeed hear your words as we praise you that you are a speaking God. Make us today a listening people and enable us to be those who honor you and glorify you, not just in our own lives, but in our own church together corporately. Uh, Fill this church with the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, and we ask it for his sake. Amen. Well, now, health is something that we all desire. We treasure health, whether it's a healthy economy or healthy children, healthy finances, a healthy family, a healthy work-life balance, a healthy heart. All of the advertisements are about the secrets of health. From the insurance plan that we choose to the annual checkups we attend, we want to be healthy, healthy cholesterol, healthy teeth, healthy eyesight. So we monitor our blood pressure visit the eye doctor, go to the annual medical check. We religiously take our fish oil supplements, I hope you do. Uh, We watch our calories, eat less carbs, take multivitamins, go to the gym, and increase our daily steps. So much so that a staggering 4.3 trillion was spent on healthcare in the US 
in 2021. But what is health? The old English word is high health, and it derives from a word that really means whole or complete. So to be healthy means to be complete. It means to have a totality or a wholeness to it, if you like, a unity, a unity within the body, a wholeness that produces the dynamic growth we all long for. <clears throat> so the World Health Organization, in a statement that they made many years ago, says that health is a state of complete physical and mental well-being, not just the absence of disease. But what about church? What are the marks of a healthy church? And this question is not just academic for the theologians and the church statisticians. Because right across the United States of America, many churches are in rapid, serious decline. 2019 is the last year that data is available. And while, a, uh, while uh, 3,000 new churches began in that year, 4,500 Protestant churches closed. They'll never open their doors again as they're turned now into buildings, flats, apartments, condominiums, stores, or mosques. Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, perched over the Mediterranean. They've started well. He himself planted the congregation. But he's desperately concerned they remain healthy and alive. But what is the mark of a healthy church? And chapter 4 tells us, as we now change gear in his epistle, there's a definite change as we reach chapter 4, verse 1. John Stott puts it like this. We now move from the new society to the new standards, from exposition to exhortation, from doctrine to duty, from credenda to agenda, from what God has done to what we must do, from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth concrete implications. And as we open chapter 4, what Paul has for us is not just the advice of a church consultant or even an area bishop. Rather, these are the words of an authoritative apostle from God. See how he describes himself there in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord... It's a deliberate double entendre, a play on words. Because though he has been taken captive by Rome, he's not really the prisoner of Nero, but the prisoner of Christ. His real captivity is to the will of Jesus. This is God's own apostle, commissioned and given authority to speak God's authoritative words. So this morning, it's not that we're hearing the words of Paul, but the words of God. And that's why his appeal is not cash, but strong. He says, I implore you, literally I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The calling that Paul is talking about here is God's sovereign initiative 
by which he has included us into a new humanity. And the mood of the verse is a divine passive. That means we have been called, but we had no part in the calling. The basis of the decision had nothing to do with how good or bad we were or our future potential. It had everything to do with God's gracious decision. This is the doctrine of election on which the doctrine of grace is built. Because the gospel equation goes like this. You are saved by grace plus nothing. He loves us, not because we're worthy of love. He loves us not because we will become worthy of love. He loves us because he loves us, and his love for you will never weaken or relax or grow thin or wear out. He loves you with an eternal love, and it's that eternal love that was the basis of his choice of you before the beginning of time. His call is his irresistible summons, and it came when you heard the gospel and believed in it for the first time. When was that, I wonder, for you? Was it in youth group 30, 40, 50, <clears throat> 60 years ago, or maybe at college? Was it in school as the school teacher told you of Christ? Was it a friend at school or a parent who prayed the prayer for you? Or were you at a Billy Graham rally? Was it a summer camp? Or was it that you read the Gideon's Bible like David Suchet, and at that moment, your eyes were opened forever by Christ. But this calling is not just that you've come to God for forgiveness, glorious though that is. This call is bigger because it involves an inclusion into God's new humanity, a global family, a new United Nations, a new temple, a new nation, a new people, and a new body. And what God has done in this call is unbelievable because he's taken a fractured humanity divided across the great San Andreas fault line of racial, tribal, and ethnic lines. He's torn down the great Berlin Wall of Division and joined Jew and Gentile together, not by bringing Gentiles into Israel, but by abolishing Israel and creating a new corpus, Corpus Christi, the new body of Jesus Christ. Picture it, metaphorically, in church this morning. Sitting over here, the former Israeli army captain next to the PLO terror fighter who has turned to Christ. Picture it over here, the Irish Republican, uh, the IRA activist next to the loyalist who has also turned with him to Christ. Maybe over here, the Black Lives Matter commander next to the Ku Klux Klan member. By nature, there was nothing but hatred and bigotry the old order had nothing but enmity and hatred and violence, but God has taken a broken humanity and united the grand canyon of alienation as he has brought us together through his death at Calvary by which the great divide has been healed 
forever. But the point is, I'm not saved to live as a little spiritual Jack Horner in my own privatized and personal little corner, me and Jesus, Jesus and me. I'm saved to belong to a new people, a new humanity, a new church built through his bloods. And that's why Paul in verse one can make this appeal. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirits in the bond of peace. The word diligent is very strong in the original Greek. <clears throat> it means to put every effort into it. No effort is to be spared on this. And the word preserve is really the word guard that I guess is borrowed from outside the White House where the marine detail stand guard as sentries. They watch the Oval Office they ensure it is not invaded and attacked. So Paul's point, if we've understood this new humanity, is that we need to put every effort corporately together into ensuring that no one here and nothing here ever divides this congregation that Christ has secured through his precious bloods. And in verse 2, we discover how this is to work. How is this unity to be preserved and guarded? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. You see, by nature, I want to wear my own little crown over my own little head in my own little world. And you want to wear your own little crown over your own little head in your own little world, which is fine until we meet. Because when we meet, if I want to wear my crown and you want to wear your crown, and if I want to rule and you want to rule, who rules when we meet? Because it's war, isn't it? And Paul's point is that in becoming a Christian, I've taken off my crown and you've taken off yours. We have submitted together in this new humanity to the Lordship of Jesus. And so this new humility is to displace the old arrogance. This new gentleness is to displace the old pushiness. This new patience is to displace the old ugly irritability. And this new tolerance is to displace the old judgmentalism. And we are humble and tolerant now and gentle because as we look in the mirror, we see the humility and tolerance and mercy of Jesus to us. I can't be judgmental to you as I see how tolerant Jesus has been to a sinner like me. I cannot be arrogant with you for I see now how humbled I am at the mercy of Jesus to me. I cannot be pushy with you because I see how gentle Jesus has been with me. For as I see the agape love of Christ, active and sacrificial at Calvary, that love will be active in my life as Jesus makes my heart his royal residence and as he establishes his throne of love 
in my heart and in your heart as well. Look back then to those verses, verse 2, and does it remind you of anyone you know? Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. It is as if we're holding a photo of Jesus Christ. And as he enters our hearts, and as he begins his work by his Spirit, we metamorphose like tadpole to frog, like caterpillar to butterfly. We metamorphose as we increasingly reflect the likeness of Jesus Christ. Already then, we are beginning to feel something of the apostles' rebuke to our church life together. Because if this is to be the pattern, gentleness and humility and tolerance and love, church then is not about me standing on my rights, banging my fist on the table, and insisting that church is done my way or it's the highway. We don't go around threatening other people and dictating what is to be done like many little Hitlers. We don't say my way or the highway, or in the words of um, the blue eyes, um, Frank Sinatra say, I will do it my way. We, We give way in love for the good of the body for the glory of Christ. This then is how we measure who the mature Christians are in the sanctuary today. What's the metric? How do you measure a mature Christian? It doesn't matter how long they've been believers. It doesn't matter whether they're a deacon or an elder. It doesn't matter how many many verses they've memorized. It doesn't matter whether they've been to seminary. It doesn't matter if they're on staff, or it doesn't matter if he's the senior pastor. The metric is, is he gentle, patient, humble, tolerant? And does he show an agape love? And if we are struggling with relationships in our family or a painful relationship at work or even a painful relationship here at church, there's no point going on Amazon and ordering the 10 rules for living or how to win friends and influence people. Um, Just learn verse 2. Make it your screensaver. And then ask God for his power. It's the template. Imagine what work would be like or parenting would be like or marriage would be like or your small group or church would be like if only we expressed all humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance in love. The point then is that this is an internal revolution. It is disruptive. And we're bound to wonder, given how disruptive this is to my natural inclinations, does it really matter? And Paul says it really does. And the reason it matters is because in verse 4, what Paul now does is he opens the curtains to show us the spiritual realities that lie behind our life as a physical local church. Listen to this. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope in your calling, verse 5, one Lord's, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This command to maintain 
our unity is located in the Godhead itself. Because the Godhead is indivisible. It cannot be broken. And the moment we came to Christ, we were included into Christ, into God. So the unity of the church is to mirror the very unity of the Godhead itself. And seven times Paul says the word one because seven is the number for completion in Hebrew in the alphabets. And yet, there are more than 200 denominations in the U.S. And did you know that there are 45,000 different denominations across the world? The whole history of the church has been one of division. So how does this actually work? It's this. Imagine a family, two parents, and they have three sons, three boys. The three boys share the same DNA. They live in the same house. They have the same name. They are from the same parents. Biologically and legally, they are brothers. But that doesn't mean, does it, that they're always going to get on? At least it doesn't in our house. They're going to argue and bicker and fight. They're going to be jealous and competitive and say, shut up and fight each other. It might be physical and get nasty. There will be divisions and difficulties in the relationship between these three brothers. But the difficulties isn't going to affect the DNA. They are blood brothers. They are part of the same family, biologically and legally. They are connected. And it's like that in church. We cannot break the invisible, inviolable, spiritual, eternal unity because it's located in Christ, in God, in heaven forever. Nothing can break it, but here's the challenge. Is our life as a church matching and mirroring the eternal, spiritual, heavenly reality of who we are together in Christ forever. Yet, many churches are war zones. They exist in a perpetual state of permanent civil war. There are power struggles and cliques, factions, political maneuverings. Can I just tell you that nothing dishonors Christ more? And if we choose to behave like that, you vandalize the gospel. Indeed, by the time we get to chapter 6, as we discover that Satan is operating amongst us, it's worse. We play into the hands of the devil himself who seeks to divide and destroy God's church. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who refused to comply with the demands of the Nazi regime, and who in 1934 wrote the Barmen Declaration, describing what a true church should look like, wrote from the concentration camp to which he was sent what it means to be part of God's church in love. Listen to this. 
Those who dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community become destroyers of the Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. But it is not we who build, Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it. For he will build a temple of idols without wishing or knowing it. Bonhoeffer continues, don't meddle with what is not your providence. Do what is given to you and do it well. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. His point is that we mustn't manipulate and demand church on our own terms, but rather be those who live in love and forgiveness, surrendering to church on Christ's terms because he is the one who has saved us and he is the one who builds his church. Well, there's our first somewhat challenging point the mark of a healthy church united in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Here's the second. It's a church then equipped by the word of God, verses 7 to 12, because Paul writes to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This quote is taken from Psalm 68, We had it read earlier on, a psalm of David. The picture is of David, the victorious king. He's returning to Jerusalem in triumph. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So having descended the mountain to battle, uh, this king is now ascending in triumph. And this is Jesus' journey too. But he's not king of an earthly Jerusalem, but of heaven. So the mission of Jesus is V-shaped. It's the creed. He came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate's dead and buried. That's the descent. And then after the cross comes the ascent through his resurrection and ascension. The third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Jesus' resurrection and ascension then is his victory parade before the watching cosmos. And in the ancient world, the king, having secured the booty, would share the plunder, the spoils of war, with his commanders and his nation, as all would be enriched with what was secured through the victory. Picture William, Duke of Normandy, 
He actually mounted the only ever successful invasion of England, defeating Harold at the Battle of Hastings 1066, at which point the whole of England fell under Norman control. And did you know that still today, therefore, the language of the English court is still French? In every court in the country, there is a crest that reads, Dear et mon droits, uh, God and my right. The French amongst us, I know, are thrilled by this wonderful news. <laughs> but actually, as um, William came into victory, what actually happened was he rewarded the barons who had assisted him in the fight. Men like Eustace, the Count of Bologna, and William, the Count of Evreux, William Malay, the Lord of Granville, and Odo, the Bishop of Bayeux. Actually, all of them were given lands in England under a new baronial system. The king, victorious in battle, showered gifts on his people because the triumph was theirs as much as it was his. So the risen, ascended Jesus has showered his people, the church, with gifts. And there are two gifts, Paul says, we have been given. Both are glorious. First is saving grace. He led captive a host of captives. Only the original in Psalm 68 is more striking. It literally in the Hebrew reads, he took captivity captive. The point then is not just that Jesus has opened the gates of Guantanamo to let the inmates out and freed them. That's glorious. It's actually that he has destroyed Guantanamo forever as well. We were held in captivity to sin, Satan, and death. But it's not just that we've been liberated from sin, Satan, and death, but that sin, Satan, and death soon will be destroyed forever for Jesus has taken them captive, rejoice. Saving grace, but there's a second side to the gifting, equipping grace, for he gave gifts to men. This isn't saving grace now, but the grace we need, having been saved, to grow. And if you look at verse 11, the gifts which Paul is talking about are all to do with the word of God. So he gave some to be apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and pastor teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. These are word gifts and they operate in a chronological line. The first gift is the gift of the capital A apostles who were inspired by Jesus, appointed by him to speak his word in a uniquely powerful way. There are no apostles around anymore. This leads on to the prophets, not of the Old Testament, but of the New Testament, who were those who spoke in what was called the intertestamental period as they tried to actually explain the words of Jesus and the apostles when they didn't have a completed Bible to go from. A unique period in salvation history. It leads on to the evangelists who herald the gospel by proclaiming the word of the apostles to the world. And then pastors and teachers, only that's a singular office. It's the pastor teacher because the teacher 
pastors as he teaches, and as we pastor, we teach. It's a singular office. It's going on right now as the whole church is pastored through the teaching of the words of the apostles. But how are we to avoid the titanic tug of culture, Satan, and our own sin? That's the question as we grow. And the answer is that the risen, ascended Jesus gifts his church with word-centered leadership. The point then is that a biblical church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy, for we sit under the authority of God. But how is that authority of God expressed in love? And the New Testament answer is as the risen, ascended Jesus gifts his church with elders and pastors able to teach and nurture and defend and lead and rule and counsel and nourish the church. It's a great gift. Shepherds, pastors, and teachers, the Praetorian Guard, guardians of the church. In our anti-authoritarian culture, there is great suspicion of authority, but we must never give way to that here at our church. If we do, it is the death of our church, because the risen, ascended Lord Jesus gifts his church with elders and pastors through whom his word is applied and taught so that together we might grow into the fullness of Christ. One commentator puts it like this, Christ's giving of ministers of the word to build up the whole body into his fullness is interwoven with the goal of Jesus pervading the cosmos with his presence and rule. And I think, therefore, we need to give great thanks to God for the uh, astonishingly godly eldership that you have as a church in the elders I've met and I know. Uh, as you know, in the Constitution, elders are in charge of the pastoral, theological, and moral oversight of the church. It's vested in them as the spiritual council. It may well be the case that their position is not as clear to us all as it should be, and it is the case that our elders are perhaps not as visible as they should be, and that's why a number of elders have been involved in a governance review over the last seven months, and we want to make sure that there is transparency and clarity in how elders operate so that the risen, ascended Lord Jesus who has gifted his elders to his church, that they are enabled to lead us in a clearer way. And there'll be more on that, I'm sure, in future months. It's also worth saying that this talk of unity is not unity with everybody everywhere. We're not united with everybody everywhere. Because the sole ground of our unity, says Paul, is the teaching of the apostles. And that's why biblical unity will also demand from time to time disunity. Disunity with those who refuse the teaching of scripture. In fact, on Monday this week, history was made as 
for the first time in its history, the worldwide Anglican communion finally split. The issue was that the Church of England had voted to let priests in England bless same-sex marriages and civil partnerships. But the archbishops, bishops, and primates of the global south said, we cannot be in unity with those who are departing from the historical faith of the apostles. And in an excoriating letter of rebuke to the Archbishop of Canterbury, they wrote this. As much as the primates want to keep the unity of the visible church and the fabric of the Anglican communion, our calling to be a holy remnant does not allow us to be in communion with those provinces which have departed from the historic faith and taken the path of false teaching. This breaks our hearts, they say. We pray for the revisionist provinces to return to the faith of the apostles once and for all delivered. The first mark of the healthy church united in the spirit, the second is that we are equipped by the word of God. And as we are equipped by this word, let's just take a look at what's going to happen amongst us, verses 13 to 16, as we grow in dynamic ministry. Verse 16, as the whole body being filled and held together, as every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, as we grow into the building up in love. Worth asking how we picture church. Is it like a performance we watch from the stalls? Is it more like a company where we are invested stakeholders? Is it a hospital in which I'm sick and I'm surrounded by the medical team? Is it a restaurant where I go and I expect the server to wait on me hand and foots? Or is it a historical site where I go just to treasure the memories and the nostalgia of the past? None of these is biblical, and I'm afraid none of them is the mark of a healthy church. The biblical metaphor is a body. And there are, um, I think my biology is slightly rusty, but 78 main organs in the human body heart, brain, kidneys, liver, lungs, a complex system of cells and tissues, the digestive system and renal system and respiratory system, reproductive system. There are glands and intestines. There's a spinal cord, a spleen, a stomach, and so on and so forth. So membership of the church is not like being a member at Costco any more than it's like being a member of the gym or of the golf club. To be a member of the church is to be an organ within the human body, attached, alive, active, growing. And Paul's point is that the task of the pastors is to teach the word of God, to equip all of the organs and tissues and cells, the whole body, to then engage, he says, in ministry. And what is the ministry that we're engaging in? Verse 15, we're all speaking the truth in love. The original is striking. We're truthing in love. Love without truth is soft, but truth without love is harsh. But the picture of a healthy church is that every single one of us is speaking the word of Jesus, whether it's on the connections team, or is it in nursery, or is it at eye blast? 
Or is it in the online team as we load up sermons? Is it in the pastoral visitation team? Is it in the choir or the kids' choir, the music team? We're all engaged in active ministry as well as actively speaking the word of God to one another. If we don't, the church will become flabby, limp and listless. The joints will seize up. The muscles and bone lose calcium and mass. But when the whole body is active, the whole body is growing. It's a glorious picture, isn't it? Into the fullness of Christ. Speaking the word of truth, truthing in love, gospeling one another. And as Paul writes, this is the way we preserve here the unity that we have in heaven, in Christ, and forever. It is as the gospel of Jesus Christ is applied. The commentator Peter O'Brien puts it like this, having achieved dominion over all the powers through his victorious ascent, he sovereignly distributes gifts to the members of his body. And then this, the building of the body is inextricably linked with his intention of filling the universe with his rule, since the church is his instruments in carrying out his purposes for the cosmos. As the Second World War um, looked back on the First World War, they noticed that at the First World War there was a sign that was put up virtually in every single school, town hall, and government building, community hall. It was a picture of Field Marshal Lord Kitchener, who was the head of the British Army in 1914. And as they were recruiting men for the front, the caption with a thumb and finger pointing out from Lord Kitchener read this, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. A caption shamelessly stolen, I think, by JFK here in the United States of America. And now shamelessly stolen by the preacher to land the sermon for the mark of the healthy church is a unity of the spirit. Isn't this what we want? A church equipped by the word of God as the pastors train us all for gospel ministry. And then a church not declining with those 3,000 churches across the country, but actively growing in maturity and number, in dynamic spirit-led, gospel-filled ministry. Let's pray that's us as we sit. So, Father, for the times when we have perhaps done church insisting on our way, we ask your forgiveness, and our prayer is that your word would rule us in a unity of the faith. Help us, Father, to be those marked by the gentleness, the humility, the tolerance, the patience, and the love of Christ. Would he rule us corporately through his words and fill us that the universe would be filled by his person, 
work and love. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen.